Are you in a long distance relationship? Is it difficult to find people who just get it? We know for us, it was challenging to feel understood and supported. That's why we created a collection of worksheets and guides for how to navigate long distance. You'll find information like how to communicate with your partner, how to keep things spicy, and how to discuss your values and closing the distance. This is totally for you. Head over to www.suzyhalajian.com shop to pick up your own copy and learn the skills to empower your relationship. Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Couch Time Podcast. My name is Janet Byramian, and I am joined by my co-host, Susie Halagian. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Janet, it's been such a long time since it's been just you and I speaking on an episode. I know. We've had so many fun guests recently, so I hope everyone has enjoyed those episodes, but I love our dynamic too. And what we're going to be talking about today is for clinicians that are newly licensed, or if you're in grad school, thinking about starting your own private practice, we are going to talk about the business side of starting your own private practice. And what's that like? Because I know for me, a lot of it was trial and error. For me, it still is. <laughs> right? It's still happening, I think, too. Right. And and this is something that I think we we tend to talk about a lot without having much like to to show for it. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear a few tips that we have personally found are really helpful, or they're at least good building blocks to start your private practice foundation on. Yeah. So why don't we just get into it? I know for me, when I was thinking about starting my own private practice, I needed to ask myself if I was going to see clients in person or if I was going to do things virtually. And I chose the virtual option, oddly enough, even before the pandemic, even before everyone knew they were going to be doing Zoom sessions. You were ahead of the wave. I tried. I tried. It was a bit of a slow buildup at that point because I started my private practice in 2019. So it was before the whole craziness happened. So what I would say is sit with yourself and really think about what kind of sessions do I want to have in person, virtual, maybe even a hybrid? I think so many therapists have probably been experienced. You know, we, we've talked about Zoom burnout and Zoom fatigue. So, you know, I think as things are starting to open up, we're starting to see that people actually, I, I think I've been seeing both schools. I've been seeing people say, I love this. I love the flexibility of being able to be at home or not have to go into an office, not have to worry about office rent, right? Mm -hmm. And then there are people who have realized, okay, well, this has been fun. Maybe I could, like you said, have a hybrid of the two. And that's totally. what works best for me. And then there are some people who are just so over it and really need to be back in person with people, which I completely understand as well. Yeah. Where would you say you're at? Cause I, I think for me, I want to do the hybrid thing. I, I love the idea of the flexibility of hybrid, but I am sick of being at home <laughs> to start mm -hmm. off with. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is a great way to step into, you know, our first tip, but I think I would love to do both as long as I have dedicated office space to do it in. Yes. And I think that's because I don't enjoy being at home anymore. It doesn't feel like my relaxing sanctuary. And maybe if I had a separate office room, that might be different. But since I don't, I'm trying to work with what I have here. And I think I would love to have an office to see people in again and to be able to escape to and do my virtual sessions. I totally hear what you're saying. I think I'm still okay with the part-time virtual because throughout this whole time, I've had a separate office space Mm -hmm. in my house. So if I were in the position where, you know, I had to sort of create a space like near my kitchen or space in my bedroom, that would have been hard. So I can totally understand that it's, you need a separate office space. Yeah, for sure. I think it's so healthy to have it too. You know, like we talk about being able to compartmentalize your work-life balance. And I think a lot of that was forcefully blurred for a lot of people because of the Mm -hmm. pandemic, understandably. So as we're seeing things start to normalize, I think it's a healthy step to to think about. And as, as a new clinician that might be stepping into private practice, it's a really big thing to think about because then you start thinking about, well, can I financially afford office space? Do I rent from someone else? It brings up such a Pandora's box of questions. Right. I think that's the cool aspect of it too, because when you're looking at office space, of course, there are options where you can like lease it, you know, and that's just going to be your space, you know, seven days a week all day. Or if you don't want to make that huge of a commitment, or if that option is just too expensive out of your budget, there is also the option of sort of being like a sublease you know, with a clinician or somebody else that just has their own office space that they're ready to rent out. So I love that we have, you know, some of those options. It just takes a bit of research to find, you know, what works for you. On that note, though, for a lot of the new clinicians, what I would also encourage when you're in that space of sort of shopping around for office space, also consider office space that maybe incorporates parking or has Mm -hmm. easy parking in the area. I can totally recall experiences just myself as a client going to see my therapist or even just going to my, let's say regular doctor's appointment. Yeah. If I'm struggling to find parking, I'm going to start resenting going. So, oh my goodness, Janet, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because yeah, yeah, like in the past year, I've been obviously driving around LA because that's the only thing you can do really in the past year. And I keep coming across these beautiful locations either in the Valley or, well, I guess maybe not the Valley. The Valley always has parking, but like if I'm thinking West side, if anyone Mm -hmm. listening knows LA, there's such beautiful, fun, hip locations with like negative zero parking spaces, negative zero, negative like parking spaces. So I've started to think about that a lot. And I think like as a clinician too, I would feel terrible knowing that my client might have to come 20 minutes early sometimes just to drive around the same block over and over again until a spot opens up. Right. So that's a really great point. Really think about parking. Think about that experience that a client is going to have before they even step in that door. Exactly. 
Definitely an important consideration because I personally would hate for my clients to dread coming to my office. I think if that were the case, they'd all probably all just choose to do it virtually, (laughs) I think. Right. And for clients who have anxiety or get stressed out easily, I can't like, I can imagine that there are times where I'm just, I, I like to be punctual. Mm -hmm. And if just by chance, you know, I, I plan to be there at the perfect time, but there's no parking. There goes my next like 15 minutes. Totally. The next point that you're going to want to look at is how you want to set up your business. I know it's so interesting because I'm from California, currently live in Florida right now. And the laws between both states are just so uniquely different. So of course, everybody check your state's regulations. It's something that you can certainly speak with an accountant. But what's going to be important is identifying how you're going to set up your private practice. If you're going to be a sole proprietor, if you're going to be an S-corp. I know in California, Susie, correct me if I'm wrong, but clinicians are not allowed to set up their private practices as an LLC. You know, we're not allowed to incorporate, but in Florida, that's what everybody does. You, your business becomes an LLC. So you have to check your state's regulations and understand what's appropriate and acceptable. And that is something where what I would highly recommend is find a trusted accountant that has worked with a lot of therapists before that does keep up to date with the laws that can provide you the important feedback that you need in terms of that. I would completely agree with that. I think also, at least for me, there are so many small things that you have to do. And we talk about this all the time. School does not prepare you for it. You do not know all the forms and licenses and extra things you need to set up a business as a therapist and help yourself by finding someone who is really well versed in that because it will save so much time. You'll also not have the anxiety of doing anything wrong and you know, putting your business at stake. Mm -hmm. So it's super helpful. It's also helpful because there are so many benefits to being a business, whether, you know, you're in Florida and can be an LLC, or if you're in California and have to be a sole proprietorship, there's refunds and deductions and all these things that you invest in your business and you can get back in return. And having an accountant who can help walk you through those steps, super important, super helpful and provides a lot of return. So how do you find the right accountant? What I would say is ask around, talk and network with other clinicians who either own private practices or have experience doing this and ask around, ask for referrals. Networking has been some of the best ways that I've been able to connect with the appropriate people that I've needed. For sure. And I'm sure some people are thinking, well, I don't have time to go out and network or, you know, if we're still talking, not being you know, out in the world, then I'm going to get a lot of hate for this. I don't, I don't like the Facebook therapy groups at all. So for those of you who don't know, there are Facebook groups full of therapists and mental health clinicians. And the idea of them is to create just a referral network. And I don't think it's always the best, but I do think it's helpful when you are looking for these types of referrals. So ask around, get people's information down, contact them, reach out, see what you feel about them. But I do think it could at times be a good treasure trove to to find people. Sure, sure. But use it sparingly. 
use it sparingly. I know what I did and it sounds prehistoric at this point, (laughs) but in my community at the time, you know, around the time I got licensed, I would just attend a lot of networking events. Like I know there was the California Society of Clinical Social Workers. There was the San Fernando Valley Marriage and Family Therapist Association. Like I'm sure every region has their own sort of networking group with clinicians. And if they're not meeting in person right now, I don't see why we can't all Zoom and find the information or ask the information that way. It's, I don't, I don't know why it sounds archaic in 2021 to network, but I still think it's really <laughs> helpful. <laughs> I, I think people look at the forms of networking as archaic, <laughs> but I guess so. Yeah. But you're right. Like camps and, and Janet reminded me the one for social workers as well, but they're, they do have referral lists and they have newsletters that they send out again, sounds super archaic, but all of these things are created to help a clinician's work life be a little bit easier. Absolutely. The next piece to talk about, and I established my private practice, like I said, two years ago, I know Susie, you did yours recently. So Mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but it's also going to be important to set up an NPI number. Yes. It's going to be important. Once you get licensed, wait till your license number posts on, you know, your board's state board's website. That's going to be very important. I don't even remember how I set up my NPI. It's been so long. (laughs) Through that. Mine's a little bit recent, but if I told you I knew how, I would be lying. <laughs> there's there's a random website, and guys, we will list all of this for you in the show notes because it's actually not just an easy site like npi.com or anything like that. But you basically create an account, put all your information in, and then they automatically generate one for you. And for those of you who might be listening and are thinking, guys, what in the world is an NPI number? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So an NPI number, I believe is a national provider identifier. Correct. And it's used mainly for, let's say you do take insurance or you don't take insurance, but you provide super bills, right? This is the number that you use to identify yourself as a clinician. And it's super important unless you want to be giving out your social security number to clients, which I highly doubt a lot of you want to do. And it's just one of those things that just makes your life so much easier to have, get it out of the way. It only takes a few minutes to set up along with, I would say, EIN number when you do set up your business as well. Like you said, it's for insurance purposes. If you're going to join, you know, an insurance network eventually, or if you're going to provide your clients with like an insurance statement, a a tax ID or an EIN number is how, you know, the insurance company can verify essentially your credibility as a licensed clinician and that you, you know, own your business and whatnot. I don't know all of the lingo to be quite honest. So I think that would be important to speak with like an accountant, a trusted accountant for that. I know some accountants will say, like, I remember when I set mine up, I know some accountants will say you can just use your tax ID and that can be something that can be what is incorporated for insurance. But again, as you said, Susie, like that typically, especially if you're a sole proprietor, that's typically somebody social, the clinician social, and not everyone is comfortable with that. Definitely talk, you know, with your accountant about the different options, but yes, an NPI is a national provider identification number. 
it's so weird. I don't know why we need all of these different numbers. We have our license numbers, we have an NPI, tax ID, for whatever reason, they're all necessary and important when you're starting your business. Yes. And also this is obvious, but keep records, keep, keep like a place where all of these numbers are located because trying to go back and find them after they've been set up is a lot harder than you would imagine it is. Absolutely. Definitely going to be important because like I said, if you're at some point going to be applying to be paneled with insurance companies, they're going to ask you for those numbers when you fill out your applications. So definitely going to be very important. I think this is a good leap into our next step, which is if you can, I think it's really important to have a lawyer go over informed consent and all of these forms that we provide clients when they first start therapy with us. And of course, there are so many examples. A lot of it can just be in common layman terms in order for both the clinician and client to understand. But when you do step into the role as a private practice owner, you start going into private practice. And honestly, I would even say as a as a group practice member, it's important to have someone who really knows the lingo, who knows these law caveats and things to really go over that and help protect you as a clinician. You do feel exposed as a clinician and as a business owner, especially when you're first licensed. Definitely. It's, it's important because of course, as clinicians, we send all of our clients documents to fill out prior to starting therapy. And those documents are important because, you know, it explains to potential clients, informed consent policy, privacy and confidentiality policy, our mandated reporting laws, all of that information needs to be included in paperwork. And it's not only to keep the clients informed, but I hate to say it, it's it's for us to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that clients are going to read every single line by line, but at the end of the day, you know, if they sign it, it means that they were provided those forms and given the opportunity to review and read. Essentially, it is still going to be important, like if you are meeting with clients in sessions to go over the important things, clients need to know what the mandated reporting laws are, you know, in that particular state that you're practicing in. But with these forms, with, with the legal aspect, a lot of it is really to protect ourselves as clinicians and also just to protect ourselves as business owners. It's so important. It's also so helpful and ethical for a client to have if they need to refer back to it and maybe they forgot those mandated report requirements or anything along the informed consent for them to have a reference to go back to, I think is also really nice for the client. Right. So again, how do you find the right lawyer for this? What I would encourage is, of course, perhaps somebody like a contract lawyer a lawyer that has worked with a lot of therapists, you know, in the past, again, my biggest go-to is I ask around, I network, I network in my community and ask like, Hey, have you had a lawyer look through your paperwork? Would you mind giving me the referral if you felt like it was helpful? I'm a firm believer in that. So that's my biggest go-to ask around, ask your community, ask individuals that are experienced clinicians in your community where Maybe you find them in grad school. Maybe you find them in within these different organizations. Yes. Janet, we've mentioned networking throughout so many of our other tips. Can we just add it as a whole separate tip? Network, yes. network, network. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's so helpful. My biggest thing about networking is you just never know who you're going to meet. 
you know, and what opportunities and doors that potential meeting can open. I can even remember when I was an associate right after grad school, I wanted to intern and work in private practice in tandem to agency work. I remember going to a networking meeting and meeting with one of the LMFTs, licensed marriage and family therapist that was running the meeting. And I told him, Hey, I'm, I'm new to the field. I just graduated. I'm interested in private practice. Do you know of anybody that's hiring an associate? And he actually connected me with the first private practice experience I had ever been in. And it was amazing and wonderful. So again, you just never know who you're going to meet and what doors it may open for you when you do go and network. No, it's really awesome and a really great experience for you to build on too. And to be able to share that experience and say like, you know, it probably wasn't the easiest for you to be fresh out of grad school, step into a meeting with all these, what usually look like seasoned, well, like respected therapists in the field and to ask for, for help. And sometimes we forget we're a community of helpers and right. My private practice supervisor was a huge, huge advocate of networking. And there are so many amazing pockets of, of groups of therapists throughout Los Angeles that you wouldn't really know about until you start looking into it. You know, there's specific ones in the Valley. There's some you know, on the East side, and there's some that brunch on the weekends together. So it's a really Mm -hmm. great community to build, not only for referrals for clients, but like we've talked about referrals for other professionals like lawyers, accountants, but also just really great friends in a profession that you love and enjoy and can, can build that relationship on. Totally. Well, we met networking through social media. So that's a new level of networking. Sure. (laughs) It's the millennial level of networking. Millennial Gen Z, right. Right. But I was going to say that person who connected me with my first private practice experience, I still talk to him to this day and just share with him, you know, life updates. We don't always talk about clinical things you know, in the field things. But I think it's, again, it's great just to have these connections and contacts. So I love that we're talking about networking. We are such Mm -hmm. advocates for it. I know networking may look very different these days with the online networking or networking through social media platforms. However you do it, however you connect with people, do it. Now, going off of what we just talked about, which was the forms that you submit to clients that you keep on record, of course, definitely know, again, the laws. We all take the law and ethics exam in our state of, again, how long you are supposed to keep those records. Every state is different. What I wanted to go into is electronic health records and storing those records and what your electronic, I guess, component looks like. I know some people actually still keep paper records. I don't know how you feel about that, Susie. (laughs) So electronic health records are a non-negotiable for me. I'm the type of person who loves papers, if that makes sense. I love being organized with paperwork. Yes. But when it comes to being in private practice, and having clients and having notes for every single client, every single week, all of their informed consents, all of their releases. If you, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If you don't have an electronic health record, do you, but I think you're doing it wrong. And I know that sounds harsh, but I can't do it anymore. I can't not have an electronic health record. Well, think about it. In California, we are required to 
hold and store records 14 years after a client has been terminated or discharged from therapy. Am I correct or am I wrong? I believe <laughs> it's seven years. Seven, and for okay. minors, it's seven years after their 18th birthday. So until ah, they're 25. Okay. So okay. it's thankfully not 14, Janet, but that's if a they're a minor. Of, right. Well, but that's a lot of paperwork. That's why we're saying that. That's why we're saying consider, of course, how you're going to store your documentation. Now, I mean, the pros, there are pros and cons to both, right? So if you're going to do the electronic thing, back up. You're going to have to back up your stuff. If you're going to do the paper records, then you're going to need to have a locked enclosed space mm-hmm. and enough space to store it. You, you're going to have to make sure that you know, if there's a God forbid emergency fire or whatever, you have to take that stuff with you. So take all of that into consideration. But what I wanted to say that was really cool about electronic health records, and I promise this is not an ad, I'm not getting paid to promote it. I use a specific electronic health system that already had certain forms pre kind of created. And I just adapted it in the way that I wanted to. And it just made creating like my informed consent documents and my privacy policies and whatnot, very easy because a lot of it was already looked at by a legal team. And I just wanted to add a few things just that I wanted to personally include. And I didn't necessarily have to start from scratch. And I know some EHRs, electronic health records do have that as an option. Right. And they really give you a well-rounded service. So theoretically, when we were talking about these other points, like having a lawyer to go over paperwork, having an accountant to go over transactions, some of these modern day electronic health records have really, really made an encompassing system that considers mm-hmm. all these things already. Right. So, you know, along that same note, what was really helpful for me using an EHR was having a scheduling calendar that right. helps manage all of my appointments with my clients, right? While also having a transactional component to it that simply swipes their card after I'm done with a long day and I never have to worry about that. And they send these reminders and they have all these things and clients have a physical record that they can refer back to. That's been super helpful. If you're going to go even the insurance route, a lot of these EHRs also have the option where you can pre-populate the insurance forms that need to be sent as well. So they make it very easy. So I'm personally someone that would advocate for an EHR just because of all of those additional features. I wouldn't want to do all of those things manually myself. I think it would just add up too much time. So consider the different options for whether you're going to do paper or EHR. There are so many options out there that it can be a little confusing. Yeah. So we both use a system called simple practice. I know when I first use simple practice, the first month was free. So I was able to kind of play around with the system, see if I liked it or not. I know they have different tiers. The tier that I have chosen is the one that includes the telehealth virtual option. So you don't even have to purchase like a separate account for zoom because they have their own HIPAA compliant telehealth software that I like. And as a reminder, everyone, if you're going to do virtual therapy, it has to be HIPAA compliant. And so that's the one that 
was really helpful for me, but I'd love to hear Susie, what you enjoy about your experience. Even the the things that we talked about, about, you know, having the scheduling, having the pre-created forms, having the transactions have just made my life so much easier and it Mm -hmm. saves time. And if Mm -hmm. I happen to forget to write a note for a client, which let's all be honest, happens. I get reminders and I have everything that I need at my fingertips. I have it on my phone if I need to. But what I really enjoyed about simple practice was it's been thought out by therapists who have been in private practice and know what you're going to need, Mm -hmm. but they had an amazing onboarding call with me. And I feel so supported every time something goes wrong or I click the wrong thing or I lose something on simple practice that I can simply reach out and get all my answers from a real human being. Mm -hmm. It really has been a seamless sync for me throughout the rest of my life and my private practice. But there are multiple electronic health records out there. I know there are people who use Theranest and really enjoy it. I personally don't have experience with other systems. Janet, have you tried any other systems before Simple Practice? Yeah, I've used Theranest before my first private practice experience. The owner was using Theranest, so I was going off of what she was using. The documentation component of it was very easy. The scheduling component of it was very easy. It had certain features like that that I like, but again, it's been so long since I've used it, so I'm sure they've added more features. I wasn't doing virtual at that time, so I didn't I don't know if it had virtual components at that time. I'm sure since 2020 happened, I'm sure they've enhanced it. I know a lot of people here in Florida use a platform called Therapy Notes. From what people told me, though, that it is pretty easy. So I think, you know, you guys can kind of all play around with it. There's one more that's called Advanced MD. And I have used Advanced MD when I was part of a different group practice. You guys, I don't like that one. (laughs) It is not intuitive. I think simple practice is so easy and intuitive. With Advanced MD, it has taken me weeks Mm -hmm. of trying to use it to try to figure out this system. This system, in my opinion, personally, is not user-friendly. Maybe there are others that like it. I personally don't like it. So sorry, Advanced MD. I choose an EHR in order to make my life simpler. And if one isn't intuitive or, you know, you don't learn after going on it and playing around with it for a while, then it doesn't really do what I want it to do in my practice. No, that's a valid, valid experience with it. If it doesn't work, then I think people should know and maybe they'll hear this and and get some positive feedback to change things on. Definitely. The other piece that's going to be important for everyone to be aware of. So you're going to have to have a HIPAA compliant email. When you email clients, you're going to have to have phone and text messaging system that is also HIPAA compliant. So I'm definitely happy to give you guys my recommendations on this as well. But I think I remember when I first started, I, again, I wasn't taught that this is, this is also something that we need to be aware of. We were all, we're all aware of HIPAA. We know what HIPAA is and what that means, but on the electronic component of it. You know, I think a lot of people have been catching up and now aware that certain platforms for like texting and whatnot are HIPAA compliant and others are not. 
Yes. I I really am going to sound like a simple practice cheerleader right now, but one of the things that I do love about it is that it does offer HIPAA compliant messaging. Mm -hmm. And because I'm always on my portal anyway, it's so easy to just click the messages, send the client something over there or send them paperwork or whatever I need to. And it's almost I don't want to say it's made my email obsolete because I definitely still use my email for the majority of things, but I also love that that is completely thought out and incorporated in there. You know, if you want to send new forms, you could just do it with a few clicks. If you want to have a full messaging system with your clients in a HIPAA compliant way, you can still do it through the system there. As a, as a therapist, being HIPAA compliant and really considering all of those components is something you really do need to think about, mm-hmm. mostly in storing your records. Definitely. But what I would recommend if you're setting up your private practice, the HIPAA compliant email service that I use is Hushmail. And I've loved it. It's really great. With regards to text messaging and phone calls, I highly recommend the platform Spruce. Spruce is great because it's essentially an app or, you know, a platform where you can call text clients. It also even has faxing that is all HIPAA compliant and it's really easy. You know, we do have to pay for these things, but I'm, you know, very much about, I'd rather just have the security of everything. So I can't recommend enough some of those platforms, but again, everyone, please do your research. These are only recommendations that I've utilized that I found work for me. Right. And I hate to say it, but having a private practice does bring on a whole slew of new fees. And Mm -hmm. it's definitely something that I would recommend when you're thinking of starting your private practice, really sit down and create a financial plan because there are some of these fees that will monthly occur. And it's one of those things that kind of comes along with it, but you do have to plan out for. Let's let's wrap up and summarize the tips that we mentioned and help bring it back for people who are probably listening to this and thinking, oh my God, like, am I even ready to to do this? What what were all these tips? Why wasn't I taking notes? Well, it's okay, you guys, if if this is too much for you to take on on your own right away, what a lot of clinicians do is they join group practices sometimes first in order to gain experience and maybe even learn the business side from that end. That's certainly a possibility before, you know, going out on your own, if that's a goal. I think that's a great option for a lot of people. I know I've done that too. So what we talked about just to summarize is think about your space, where you're going to want to meet, whether it's an outside office space or creating a space in your home seeing clients in person or virtual. We talked about having a helpful accountant to um, discuss the different ways of setting up your business. We talked about looking into potentially EHRs, electronic health records, maybe paper records if that's your thing, and exploring the different options there. We talked about talking with a lawyer and speaking with a lawyer about what needs to be included in your forms that you submit to clients. We talked a lot about HIPAA and having certain things that are HIPAA compliant, like your video conferencing systems, if you're gonna be doing virtual, like how you're gonna send your forms through HIPAA compliant emailing, phone calls and text, 
that's going to be incredibly important. We also talked about the NPI numbers and setting that up for your private practice, which you can certainly talk about with an accountant. And then lastly, the biggest thing that we said was important to network, learn from your colleagues, learn from your peers, ask as many questions as you need. No question is dumb or stupid. And like you said, Susie, we are all helpers. And so please utilize the community of clinicians in your area. Yes. And though neither of us consider ourselves expert in any of these tips or areas as we're learning along the way too, we would love to engage in these conversations with you guys. And if you have any questions, you can find Janet on Instagram at therapy with Janet B. And you can find myself on Instagram at sessions with Susie. And thank you for tuning into couch time today. Yeah. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye. Bye.